Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. think you're getting a lot of hysterical, panicked people, and it's it's inappropriate to believe anything you read on the internet. I think that if this had unfolded in a different way in the media, people might not feel so panicked right now. Welcome to Away to Go, a production of iHeartRadio and Fathom. I'm Geraldine Gerba. And I'm Pavia Rosati. We're recording this podcast in early March when the new outbreak of coronavirus, the COVID-19 variation, is wreaking havoc and spreading quickly. According to the World Health Organization yesterday, more than 95,000 cases have been recorded, resulting in more than 3,000 deaths, 12 of those in the United States. Though, frankly, these statistics will probably be outdated by the time we finish recording this episode. 67 countries have been hit. The disease is still in its early days. We're already seeing massive impact worldwide. Stock markets are reeling. Global supply chains have been disrupted. Businesses are telling employees to work from home. The weeks-long carnival festival in Venice was canceled last month. The Louvre Museum is closed, as are schools throughout Italy temporarily. These are precautionary measures, and they're prudent, but they're also alarming. Travelers are afraid, and they're canceling trips. The consequences will be severe. The European Commissioner for Internal Markets estimates the financial toll in the tourism industry in Europe alone will amount to $1.1 billion per month. And people, regular people, smart people, confused people, are panic-buying supplies. Canned goods, hand sanitizers, face masks, toilet paper. Geraldine and I spend our days on the front lines of the travel industry, of leisure travel, which, let's be clear, is the very definition of non-essential travel. And for weeks, we've been having the same conversation with everyone, our friends, our concierge clients, our colleagues, even among ourselves. Is it safe to travel? Will it be safe to travel in the future? Will I be staying home forever? It's an important question best answered with rational thought and critical analysis, not fear-mongering and panic, which is a lot of what's been going on. Now, this can be challenging given the fact that things are changing super fast and that many of those so-called objective sources are giving conflicting guidance. No wonder we're confused. No wonder we're stocking up on toilet paper and chickpeas. It feels like a way to exercise control in a world that feels very much out of control. We decided it was time to look for calm answers from an expert. Our guest today is Dr. Jennifer Haith, a cardiologist at Columbia University Medical Center. Dr. Jen lives in New York City with her family and is an avid traveler, both within the Northeast and recently to Africa with the Women's Health Organization Every Mother Counts. She spends a significant amount of time working in the cardiac ICU with critically ill patients and is familiar with the care of people with critical illness and infectious disease. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Dr. Jen, let's start at the beginning. Coronavirus isn't new. We've been living with variations on this for years. We've known them as SARS, MERS, H1N1, swine flu. They're all coronaviruses. Is that right? So coronaviruses are a family of viruses, and SARS and MERS were both coronaviruses. We also have a number of coronaviruses that affect people day to day. I mean, we test for coronavirus on our respiratory panel all the time. It's just can cause a regular common flu. H1N1 was part of the swine flu or influenza family, which is a different family of viruses. 
So what's different about this one, COVID-19? So COVID-19 is different in that it seems to cause more severe illness in a certain group of patients. So the flu, for instance, can cause severe illness in many people. But, you know, overall, we see mild to moderate illness in regular patients across the country and throughout the world. People can also be vaccinated against influenza. Coronavirus or COVID-19 does not have a vaccine. And so it seems to be that it attaches itself to a receptor in the lungs and can cause more severe respiratory illness, particularly in people over the age of 70, people with prior cardiovascular disease, underlying pulmonary disease, or immunocompromised patients. So we're hearing words like epidemic and pandemic. Are we there yet? You know, these are terms that people are throwing around. You know, it's hard to know for sure where we stand. Look, this is a virus that's clearly very contagious. It seems to spread quite rapidly. And we're seeing it pop up now pretty much in every country across the world. So, you know, in my opinion, I would probably call that a pandemic. I guess the question is, will it have sustained community spread within, you know, certain countries? And we're just, at, you know, starting to see the beginning of this. In China, we saw this big upward curve and a sort of a peak happening now where, in, in fact, they're reporting a decline in cases in China. Whereas in this country, and if you look across the world, the curve is just starting to take off. So we're we're really in that phase where we're going to start to see this sort of exponential growth period, and then it's going to flatten out. How do viruses travel? <laughs> so it's a great—I mean, I wish we all knew the perfect answer to this. You know, all viruses are slightly different. So some viruses are respiratory pathogens, meaning that they uh, p- virus particles are found in the um, sputum and in the uh, nasal congestion or in the respiratory cough, you know, air that comes out of someone's lungs. So in, in those instances, if the, if the particles are aerosolized and you then breathe in the air of someone who has recently coughed or sneezed, or you uh, touch the surface within a relatively short period of time of someone who's coughed or sneezed on that surface, you could get it. There are some viruses that are passed through the GI tract. So, we'll, you know, we see a lot of viruses where people get diarrhea and vomiting. You know, those viruses are passed more through fecal-oral transmission. So if you're taking care of someone who's been vomiting or had diarrhea, you could then ingest through your mouth or through your, you know, nose into your oral cavity, and, and the virus can then enter your body that way. So, for instance, Ebola was a virus that, you know, was really transmitted more through the GI tract. People had to really be involved in the care of those patients intimately in order to contract the virus, whereas, you know, SARS and MERS was more of a respiratory pathway, and this coronavirus appears to be predominantly through a respiratory pathway. We've all seen the pictures of it starts with one person, and then another person crosses the country, and then it goes here, and then it goes there, right? People are terrified to fly. This is going to sound stupid, but is it because air is everywhere and we don't really see the things floating around us that makes it so much more communicable. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really clear to us that viruses are communicated when people are close together. Obviously, if you cough, you know, on the street and nobody's around, it's unlikely that those particles are going to infect anyone, especially, if, you know, if someone walks by a few moments later, those particles have gone and dissipated into the air. So it's not like all the air is infected with virus particles. But if you, you know, if you're in a school, if you're congregating for a conference, if you're sitting in a movie theater, if you're in an area with a lot of people and a certain percentage of those people have the virus, cough and sneezing, you can then inhale the particles yourself. So what you really need to have is some degree of close contact 
in the viruses that we've seen. And in COVID, you know, it seems to be that that's how it's spread, which is why, you know, influenza is so much more common during the school year. People, you know, are, I mean, obviously there's some thought that it becomes less stable as it gets warmer. But for the most part, you know, when we see people in large groups together, summer camps, places like that where there's an outbreak, it's because people are in closed quarters. Is that why traveling poses a little bit of a risk? Because people are in a metal tube together, breathing the same air for six hours, eight hours, 14 hours at a time. Right. So when you're traveling, there's a lot of places where you're in closed quarters with people. So you, you know, maybe you took a bus or a taxi with a taxi driver going to the airport. That person is transporting a lot of other people, right? So that's person who's a high-risk person potential for spreading illness. Then you're sitting in an airport next to a million other people in the waiting area. All of those people, some of them may be infected. Then you get on a plane, like you're saying, and you're in very close quarters with, you know, there is some air recirculation in an airplane, but it's close quarters. That being said, we're not seeing a outbreak of coronavirus-19 or COVID-19 in flight attendants or pilots. So, you know, you have to keep these things in perspective that we don't understand exactly how transmission always occurs, but it seems that the most likely way that this is being transmitted is, you know, what we just described, people breathing in particles, touching particles, then touching their mouth or their eyes, and then passing it on to their loved one who then goes to another event, and so and so on and so on and so on. One of the misconceptions about travel is that you're stand, and I didn't know this until I started doing research for this episode, we think it's canned air. In fact, airplanes are constantly filtering the air. So so the air on the plane is being filtered and cleaned continuously and constantly. I was fascinated to learn that. Yeah, no, that is actually fascinating. And and so while we are concerned about air travel right now, you know, there haven't been strict restrictions set by the CDC or the WHO on about getting on a plane. They don't want you to travel to places necessarily that are, you know, restricted travel because of outbreaks. But the planes themselves haven't been a huge source, whereas, for instance, a cruise ship where people are in closed quarters a lot are, have become, a you know, this sort of den of epidemic. right. <laughs> Yet when we were talking about the travel warnings, the one consistent travel warning is please don't get on a cruise if you're going to be anywhere in Asia. And as we're taping this episode, there's a cruise ship off the coast of San Francisco that is has thousands of passengers on it and they're helicoptering in tests before they're going to let the ship dock and let people go home. But that's a good thing to keep in mind as well when you're talking about perspective because cruise ships are known to be places where this kind of thing happens. The norovirus, I mean, affects everyone. This is one of the reasons I don't really ever want to get on a cruise ship. It just sounds like a nightmare. Geraldine, you're not alone. I think a lot of people <laughs> feel that way about cruise ships, especially the large ones. And, you know, you just never know what you could get. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Am I wrong, or do a lot of these diseases start in animals? 
No, you're not wrong. I mean, there's a lot of thought that bats and, you know, certain animal species, the pangolin has been one of the animals that's been questioned about whether it was the source of coronavirus. So these these viruses exist in animals, and then there's some mutation that happens that allows the virus to be able to then spread in humans. So how does it go from bat to human? Well, it depends. I mean, if you're handling bats, if you're eating bats, if you are are ingesting animals that are infected with a virus, or if you're cooking with those products. Bats also can bite bite you in your sleep, right? Isn't that right. a big... Yeah. So bats can, you know, bite you, but you, people can are eating bats. So anytime that you ingest an animal that might be infected, it's a potential risk. This was also seen with, you know, mad cow disease. So people were eating animal products that had been exposed to a certain protein virus and then contracted it through ingestion of the, of the meat itself. Another thing that's important to remember about transmission, Pavia, is that we hear these cases uh, that break out in Nourishelle or, you know, somewhere in the United States. And then because the index case presents to the hospital with illness, they then test all of the family and contacts around that individual. That doesn't mean that that individual was necessarily the source of infection. That individual could have been infected by someone else in their community and then just presented with more severe disease. So I think we need to be very careful about assigning a sense of like blame to yes. it, it, sick individuals here. First of all, I think that there's going to be a lot more sick people. We should take that off, off the table and just remember that that person also became infected somehow from another person who became infected. So there's no real person who is to blame for infecting other people. Yeah, I'm really sense. glad that you yeah. said that because there's so much fear and fear-based decision-making that's happening, and it can have a devastating effect on on society, on culture. Yeah, I mean, I think it's leading to a lot of, like, racism and— Xenophobia. Correct. Geraldine ate at a Chinese restaurant last night that was empty. Yeah, I mean, that's just—it's ridiculous. There's no—you have no bigger chance of getting you know, coronavirus or COVID-19. Because you're having dim sum. Correct. Right. 100%. So how scared should we be of COVID-19? It's really an evolving situation. There's different ways to think about it. I think it's tricky. I am of the belief that similar to H1N1, which, by the way, infected 45 to 60 million Americans, and there's been at least 12,500 or so deaths attributed to H1N1 in this country from the 2009 outbreak and hundreds of thousands more across the world. And that actually influenza virus, swine flu, affected young people in a pretty significant way, and there was particularly pregnant women. So in this case, we're seeing you know, older people affected, people with underlying medical problems and disease states, infectious disease. So on the one hand, it's worrisome. It's traveling quickly. It seems to be very contagious. And we worry about those populations in particular being very vulnerable. On the other hand, I really believe that if we could test everyone right now and we saw how many people are actually walking around with this illness or have a cold and don't realize that that's what they have, the death rate would be much lower. And I've said before that I think we should look to South Korea as an example of look what the mortality rate may be. They've done a, a huge amount of testing. They have drive-through testing at this point, way more testing than we've done, and their mortality rate is like about at half a percent. So if you are a young, healthy person with travel plans and you're taking the precautions, really the thing that you would be worried about is that you might be quarantined. Yeah, I mean, look, the, people have their own levels of risk mitigation, right, what you're comfortable doing. So some people may always say, I'm never going to a remote location because I'm too scared that if I had had appendicitis and I was stuck in the middle of nowhere, I wouldn't be able to get out. And then there are people who travel all over the world and don't care about any of those things, and if something happens to them, they're fine with it. In this case, it's you know, in some ways it's similar. Would you 
you go on a trip if there was a risk of getting the flu while you were there? I think that you probably would. Um, but, you know, there's so much worry right now that I think that people are nervous. And I understand that. And I think you have to decide on your own, what if I got this virus when I was not at home? How would I feel about having this virus in a country that wasn't my own country? Do I think that I would get an appropriate level of health care? And then, like you just pointed out, Geraldine, what what happens if you then do have the virus or the country you've gone to has a lot of cases crop up and they want to quarantine you in that country. So these are things you have to be prepared to deal with. And if that's okay with you, then you can travel. This is a very personal issue for me because I've been invited to go to Brazil and then to South Africa in May. And I really want to go to both places. I'm still taking a wait and see attitude because I feel like there's still a little time before I have to pull the trigger, but I'm not a calamitous person. I miss Pollyanna. Everything's always going to be fine all the time. If you tell me I'm going to be quarantined, I'm like, oh, good. I'll catch up on my email. But I'm still nervous about this. And I feel like it's partly because I'm maybe reading too many news stories, but also partly because it just feels incredibly unknowable. I can sit here and say, I won't mind being quarantined in Brazil, but I don't really know what that means. Maybe you don't want to do something that feels irresponsible or that would be perceived as irresponsible. I completely agree with you, Pavia. I mean, I think that you're going to have to take it day by day. I think it's reasonable to be nervous. I think everybody feels nervous right now. I think that as more information comes out to people who test positive, who may not be 80 and above with chronic pulmonary disease or heart disease, and it's like, oh, okay, I know a lot of people who've had this, and they've all kind of just had the flu. And as the months go on, if that's how it seems to appear, I think you'll feel more comfortable. But again, it's a personal decision. You have to be ready to face the consequences. I do think that waiting is appropriate and being cautious so that you know as time goes on, okay, I'm ready to face this now, or it seems more likely that I would get quarantined or not. So you would pause before booking these plane tickets? I would pause before going to places that don't have great medical care and medical facilities so that you're prepared for when you go there. So, Dr. Jen, since we can't have you on speed dial, what are the sources that you are checking for reliable information that the rest of us can be following also? So I think it's really important to look to the CDC, look to your city and state health departments, look to the WHO. I mean, those are the most reliable sources of information at this point. Outside of that, I think you're getting a lot of hysterical, panicked people, and it's it's inappropriate to believe anything you read on the Internet. I mean, really, I, I mean, some of the things we've seen on the Internet about what happened in China, we have no way of verifying whether that's true or not, and yet people are we're panicked about it. So, you know, I think that if this had unfolded in a different way in the media, people might not feel so panicked right now. Um, I think that that helped propagate a lot of misinformation. So we need to really, you know, button down, be very serious about, you know, what we do and don't know. Go to your health department, ask your pediatrician, ask your, your physician, you know, call the emergency room if you're concerned and you want to be tested or you think you might need to be tested. But, you know, don't just search random things on the internet. What are the things I should be worried about? I mean, what should I be feeling to know if now is the time to call my doctor? First of all, if you've had any travel to an affected area and you develop symptoms, that would be a red flag. But at this point, I think we're at the stage where we know that people are contracting the disease who haven't had any, you know, international travel. If you develop a high fever, a cough, always any shortness of breath, you know, if you feel short of breath or having a medical emergency, you need to go to the emergency room. But if you have a fever and aches and pains and you feel pretty much like you have the flu, but you're worried about it, that you have COVID, call your primary care doctor and say, 
this is how I'm feeling. What should I do? What's the next step? They're probably going to tell you to stay home, take some Tylenol, drink soup until you feel better. If your symptoms get worse and you're really concerned, you can say, I, I'm more concerned. I think I should be tested. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dr. Jen, if you do contract the coronavirus, are you good to go, or is it possible that you can get it again? So there have been some reports that there are patients who have contracted coronavirus, been discharged from the hospital, for instance, in China, and then tested positive again later. This is not something that's been well established by the CDC or the WHO. We don't really think that this is a pattern at this time. Again, this is a changing, moving target. We're getting more and more information every day. So I I like to think of it a little bit like genetics, right? So before we knew how to genotype the human body, we didn't know where any any genes were or what anything was. And as more people are getting tested and people do 23andMe, we're getting all this genetic information. It's not like that genetic information didn't exist before. It was there. We just didn't have it. And the same thing is going to happen with COVID. More information will come in about the strains and recurrence rates. And it's just that we need to actually have that body of information to tap into, and we're not there yet. Let's talk about the best practices for travelers. What would you say are the things that we should do to protect ourselves and protect the people around us? First of all, you always ha- I mean, hand washing is crucial. You have to wash your hands all the time, more times than you even want to wash your hands. You just got to keep washing your hands and using hand sanitizer. It's clearly instinctive to you because I, in the 20 minutes that you've been sitting across from us, you reach for the Purell twice. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it's funny. I was thinking, they're going to look back on this time and say that hospital-acquired infections dropped dramatically in the period between, you know, February and July of 2020 because there was so much extra caution well, around, I, you I know, think hand hygiene. It, as well, as I have two little kids. I'm, it, my daughter's in a school with 400 four-year-olds. I mean, just think about how gross that is. And all of a sudden, it's super squeaky clean. And I'm thinking, this is probably how it should be. All the time. (laughs) Totally. I agree with you. I agree with you. Now that you're mentioning kids, one thing that is sort of a gift about this disease is it doesn't seem to affect children much. It seems to be really sparing kids, which I think is a big relief for so many people. But isn't that also because kids are surrounded, to your point earlier about disease spreads and we're in large groups of people, kids are constantly coming home from school with runny noses. I mean, kindergarten is a hotbed of snot, right? It's just, so their immune, is it that their immune systems are stronger? So we actually don't have a total understanding of why kids aren't getting this. I think that the running assumptions are 
One, that maybe there's something about this virus that the receptors that are needed for it to attach in the lung haven't been fully formed or developed yet in children. Another possibility is that children get a lot of coronaviruses throughout their childhood and youth. They're exposed constantly to other coronaviruses, and so they have some kind of an immune response prepared for that. Whereas as you get older and you age and you tend to get coronaviruses less as a day-to-day virus, that your immunity wanes, and so older people are at higher risk. So in addition to hand washing, what are just general best practices for travelers to keep themselves safe and healthy? First and foremost, you need to make sure that if you're someone who takes medication, you need to be prepared with at least 60-day supply, depending on how long you're going to go away for. So assume that if your trip is a, is two weeks long, instead of bringing two weeks of medication, I would bring 45 days or 60 days of medication, knowing that you may potentially get quarantined. And always take your medications on your travel, on your carry-on bag. You don't want to be, you know, separated from your medications for any travel purposes, COVID regardless. You want to have your medications with you. So you should never check medication. The other thing to do is if you're someone, again, who has chronic underlying medical conditions, which is, you know, people who are most at risk for contracting this in a severe way, is to know where the hospitals are, where you're going. You know, what what are the best facilities to go to? Does your doctor know a doctor where you're going? You know, this could be true in the United States and, you know, overseas travel. You know, people like to wipe down their seats in in their planes. That's fine. I think that's a good idea. I don't know that that's going to necessarily prevent you from getting getting it, but if by all means, you know, wipe your seat down. Try to minimize alcohol intake. Obviously, don't do drugs. Things that could make you more prone or, or your immune system more weak. So, you know, try not to be having way too much wine, you know, having too much fun, staying up late, get a good night's sleep, you know, be really well rested. Typical things we would want to promote for good immunity. Dr. Jen, do you have any good tips and practices that you follow for just generally staying healthy when you're traveling? So I definitely do. <laughs> well, first of all, I do try to get a good night's sleep when I'm on trips and not stay up really, really late and feel very overtired. Uh, another thing I do is I always bring sanitizing wipes. So if I'm going to, if we go to a public place or we go to, you know, you know, a museum, I always wipe my hands before and after. I often even go when I go to the bathroom in those places. I'll always wash my hands and you know, hand sanitize afterwards. Do you wipe down the tables? Let's say you go to a museum and you're eating at the cafe. Do you wipe down the table first? If the table looks dirty to me, I would wipe it down. If it didn't look dirty or it looked like it had been cleaned, I would not have normally done that. In this era, I probably would. And are you carrying specific Lysol disinfectants or the Cottonelle baby wipe types of things? Are those good enough? Baby wipes tend to be very, very mild. I would use something that has more of a, like a disinfectant in it or a Clorox component to it. In my travel overseas, I always bring with me uh, some extra medications. So some of the things that I like to bring with me are, you know, a general antibiotic that can be used to treat things like a urinary tract infection or a gastrointestinal infection. I'll usually bring some fluconazole in case someone develops a fungal infection or, you know, some kind of GI fungal infection. I will always uh, bring with me Tylenol, Advil, um, ibuprofen. I'll often bring eye drops in case somebody develops, you know, pink eye in my family. I have a whole medication prep bag that I take with me that I have, you know, my doctor prescribed to me so that I have it ready to go in case of emergencies. Is this something that we can do because fluconazole, what was the drug that you mentioned? I I tend to bring ciprofloxacin, fluconazole. So these are things, though, that regular travelers need to go to their doctors and they need to get these things beforehand. 
Exactly. You would have to get your doctor to prescribe it for you. I mean, there are some things that you can get over the counter. You could certainly get, you know, Benadryl, Tylenol, Advil, you know, things that you would need that you don't want to have to go out and get if you were not feeling great. Or, a cough, you know, Benadryl, I think, is a great drug. Diphenhydramine, I, you know, if you're tolerant of it and you're not allergic, it's always helpful, first of all, for, you know, if you develop a rash, if you're having trouble sleeping, you can take one at bedtime. It's it's helpful for people who are having a cough to help suppress the cough at night. It's really Ooh, I want to add this to our show. Show notes, just your kit, your whole yeah, traveling yeah. kit. Yeah, the travel kit is a good one. Another important thing to bring is some Imodium. If anybody develops diarrhea then, and they have to get on a plane and they can't not get on a plane, it's good to have some Imodium. I mean, basically, you should create a travel pack where you're prepared for the basic major things that could happen to you. And then, you know, you have it ready to go in case of an emergency. So, Dr. Jen, the final takeaway for travelers. The takeaway is this is a serious virus. We don't have enough information to make very good decisions at this point. I would say a wait-and-see attitude is best. You have to remember risk mitigation, what you're comfortable with, what you're not comfortable with. It's your decision ultimately. Nobody can totally assure you that everything will be fine, but that's true of everything in this world. Thank you for clear, concise, rational, non-fear-mongering answers, Dr. Jen. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it was really great to have you here. We'll have links to everything Dr. Jen mentioned in the show notes, but for those of you who are curious now, you can go to cdc.gov for current up-to-date information about this virus. Also, who.int for the World Health Organization. We'll also have a link to Dr. Jen's Instagram account, at Dr. Jen Haith, that's at D-R-J-E-N-N-H-A-Y-T-H-E. And that's our show. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And, you know, leave us a five-star review. Away to Go is a production of iHeartRadio and Fathom. You can find the details we talked about in the show notes and on our website, fathomaway.com. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter when you're there. You can get in touch with us anytime at podcast at fathomaway.com. And follow us on all social media at, at @fathomwaytogo. Please tag your best travel photos hashtag #travelwithfathom. If you want to really go deep on the travel inspiration, pick up a copy of our book, Travel Anywhere and Avoid Being a Tourist. I'm Geraldine Gerba, and I'm Pavia Rosati. And we'd like to thank our producer, editor, and mixer, Marcy Depina, and our executive producer, Christopher Hasiotis. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.